Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Well, howdy folks. Good morning. Welcome to our online gathering. My name is Andre, lead pastor at the city. As always, encouraged to see you attend uh, this mode of church and as always privileged to bring you God's word uh, on Sunday mornings. Well, you've recently joined us. We are uh, beginning a series of conversations, of sermons on what it means to be the church, especially in this time where many of you are grappling with certain existential questions relating to the church, its role, its place in the world, in society. It's important for us to come back to a biblical definition and vision for what it means to be the church. Now, these series of conversations have come out of a kind of pastoral urgency, I feel in my heart, to prepare our church for times and seasons uh, that perhaps beyond COVID-19, that may be ahead of us, where we are not able, where we may not be able to gather in large kind of service and gatherings in a conventional way for significant lengths of time. And it isn't that the gathering is dead or passe or be tossed away or to be regarded. Not at all. The issue isn't the gathering. God does marvelous things when we gather in this hall. He does amazing things, especially when the people of God come together in a united way to contend for stuff, to pray, to praise, to exalt His name. He comes in His presence, His glory, His power. The gathering is beautiful, is to be valued. But the issue is how much we as a church, as a people, have leveraged on the Sunday gathering for our formation, for what it means to be the church of the Bible. The issue is whether we, meaning you and I, your pastor, have given our Sunday gatherings a certain form of function that wasn't even biblical to begin with. How do we witness? How do we share our faith? How do we serve? How do we learn? How do we grow? How do we worship? How do we participate in the mission of God? How do we, do we love our fellow brothers and sisters? And probably the answer to all those questions has something to do with the Sunday gathering. Now that, I would like to put it to you, wasn't part of God's intent or design. The church wasn't meant to be confined to a gathering that lasts for two hours. It is to go beyond the four walls of a building into the world. I'd like to cast a compelling biblical vision for what it means to be the church. Now we explore a passage last week from Ephesians chapter 4 and now this passage is really designed to tether our hearts to a biblical vision for what it means to be a church, a mature church. And in that passage we read uh, Paul's vision of a mature church that it had strong interpersonal relationships, it was united, it had clarity and commitment to doctrine, it was working towards growth and maturity, it was speaking the truth in love, not bowing down to PC culture, and people, everyone was being equipped for the work of ministry. Now from the text, I propose three shifts that our church would enter into even as we pursue this biblical vision for being a mature church. The first shift was this, that we will see ourselves moving from being Sunday-centric to community-centric. And the next shift was that we'll move from being evacuational to missional. And the last shift, was to move us from being spectators, for there to be people spectating and, and kind of audience in our church, to everyone being equipped 
for the work of ministry. I elaborate on these points in my previous message. Please do check it out. And so today I'll be taking some time to pass out what it means for our church to move away from being Sunday-centric, leveraging purely on the Sunday gathering for spiritual formation, growth, and mission into being a people that is a kind of community, that is koinonia, that is a people called out, sent out by God, living unto His mission. And so today I'd like to speak to you on the subject of church, the family of God. Let's pray as we begin this morning. Father, as always, we thank you for your word. Your words brings life and deliverance. And today, oh God, even as we read of your words in scripture, our hearts tremble with reverence, with fear of your words, oh God. Lord, we don't take these words lightly. God, we recognize that your spirit has breathed upon his words and is speaking to us even today. And God, we ask even as we read through this text that we won't do so in a haphazard manner, but we'll read these words with sincere hearts, with hearts ready to hear, with hearts ready to obey your words, O God. Lord, we pray, speak to us this day. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Now, I don't know whether you, like me, uh, grew up in a kind of household like, like, like I did. Uh, you know, I, as a young person, had the really bad habit of uh, going out with my friends really late, late at night and not telling my parents, not telling my mom that I was going to be out super duper late. And we'll go out with my friends, you know, I'll go out with my friends, I'll lose track of time. And, you know, I'll get home, it's like one or two in the morning. I had it in my mind that my mom would probably be in bed already. And then I come back home and I see the main door open and the light, a, a dim light shining through uh, the, the entrance of the door. And I knew instantly that my mom was awake and she was waiting for me. And I'll open the door ever so slightly, hoping that she wasn't there. And I get in and I'll see her sitting on the couch. And she looks at me and the first words out of her mouth were this, don't treat this home like a... And I can hear that word, whatever word you said, just echoing all through Singapore because we all have similar mothers, don't we? Don't treat this home like a hotel. And what my mom, what your mom, what all the moms of the world mean by that phrase is, hey, don't treat this home as a place you visit on occasion. Don't treat this home as just a place that you lay your head, but belong. Lay roots here. Give and be given to. That is what it means to be a home, a family. Don't treat this home like a hotel. Treat it like a home. But, you know, this idea of a home, of a family, I'd like to put it to you, isn't just in relation to you belonging to the church uh, by way of membership, belonging to a certain institution or organization, signing your name on a piece of paper. That is, what it does, that is not what it means to be part of a home, to be part of a family, to be part of the church. We think of it as membership, but I'd like to put it to you that being the family of God, committing to a church as your home means more than just membership. But before we move on further, I'd like to ask us a question. What comes to your mind when you think of the word church? What comes to your mind when you think about the church? For a good chunk of the world, they think of architecture, they think of the cathedrals, they think of really nice buildings, they think of some modern-looking ones, they think of halls and auditoriums, they think of the church as a kind of location with an address, something of the church as an event, 
as a program, as something that you attend. Or perhaps because of our current cultural moment, some would have a more consumptive vision of what the church is. It is an experience that you consume. Words like, what do you get out of it? Or, was the worship good today? Did I get the feels? Or was the pastor relevant and relatable in his message? What did I get out of it? Did they even serve coffee? Not the three-in-one kind, but like cold brew coffee or drip coffee. It's kind of experience that you consume. And I may sound dismissive here, and of course, when we make you know, certain decisions regarding church, we have certain preferences and bands and needs, but this can be damaging if it's a predominant view, predominant approach to the church, to the people of God, to the house of the Lord. C.S. Lewis writes this in the screw tape letters. He says this, Surely you know that if a man can be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster, a connoisseur of churches. The search for a suitable church, notice the quotations, makes the man a critic where the enemy, meaning God, wants him to be a pupil. Startling words. And so if the church isn't a building, a location, a program, or an event, or an experience that we consume, what then is it? What is the church? First off, the word church has different scopes to it. The word church could mean the universal, historic, global church, but the word church would also refer to a kind of local community, a local gathering. Now, the Greek term for church in the Bible is the word ekklesia, and it's found 114 times in the New Testament. In the New Testament context, the word is employed in four different senses. Number one, it represents the body of Christ worldwide over which the Lord functions as head. Number two, the expression can refer to God's people in a given region. So we think of the book of Revelation. I write this to the church of Ephesus, to Laodicea, to Smyrna. Verse three, uh, point three, frequently, it is also depicted as a local congregation, as a people gathered in a certain locale together. And number four, it could also signify a group of God's people assembled for worship. Now, these are all words that, or all um, terminologies, are all connotations when the word church is used in the Bible. Now, much of the source of confusion surrounding the idea of church and of ecclesia, this Greek word that is used to describe the people of God in the Bible, is that the word church was only used in the 4th century and is used to describe the building to which the ecclesia met in. And over time with Bible translations, the word church was used for the Greek word ecclesia in the Bible. So there's a ton of question, right? When Jesus was talking about, hey, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, was Jesus talking about literally putting bricks and mortar to the ground with cement and building a physical church? Surely not. Jesus was talking about a people. He was talking about building a people, a community of Christ followers, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So when we read biblical texts about the church, we shouldn't disconnect with it and think of it as something in reference to a program, event, building, or a select group of leaders. When the writers of the Bible write about church, they are pointing to you and me, people who have been called by God, the ecclesia. We are, in many ways, the church. Church is not a building. It is not 
a hall. It is not an event. It is not a program. It is not an experience you consume. Church is a people. We are the church. So now I've seen this definition of we are the church being misconstrued and twisted in many ways to justify non-commitment and just blatant, uh, no, blatant uh, refusal to submit to spiritual authority and leaders. Like words like, I don't have to go to church on Sunday. I am the church. I don't have to listen to my leaders. I hear from the Spirit too. I am the church. I am the church. You know, I too hear from the Spirit. I don't need to submit. I am the church. Now this slogan, I am the church, has even made it onto t-shirts. Well-meaning people trying to communicate the truth that God's uh, church is not a building, event, or program has come out of shirts like that. I am the church to, to kind of like encourage people to think differently about the church. Well-meaning intentions, but horrible theology. Hear me in saying this. You are not the church. I am not the church. But us together, we, the people of God, coming together, we are the church. We look at it in the book of Ephesians when it says this, that in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. It is us coming together. That is when we become the church. As individuals, we don't exist in and of ourselves as the church. It is in us coming together. It is in the gathering that church happens, that church occurs. Now, can someone be saved without attending the church? Absolutely. Can someone be in relationship with Christ without ever committing or belonging to a church? Yes. But don't think for one moment that that is supposed to be the norm. Don't think for one moment that that is supposed to be what characterizes the people of God. What is to characterize the people of God is that we belong to a body. We belong to one another. And unlike secular communities, how we relate to one another is to be distinctive and alluring. And we see the early church being a community like that. They grew because of their message and the miracles, but also in the manner to which they lived. And so, it's with all that being said, I'd like to offer to us today a first draft definition of what I believe the church is and is to be. Now, this is a work in progress, can be edited and expanded over time. But here goes. This is what I believe the church is to be. The church is an embodied community that's gathered around the person of Christ, His presence, but also His sacraments, that's submitted to spiritual authority, committed to God's purposes, and practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of our world. It is a mission-minded, multi-generational family of faith. Now, this is a working definition of what the church is to be, but I believe in that definition, it captures much of the biblical idea, the biblical vision for what we are called to be in our world. Now, first off, it is an embodied community, meaning people are actually together in the flesh. It's so ironic that I'm talking about this over, you know, this kind of online meeting kind of mode. And that's why we're really careful as a team. We don't talk about this being online church per se. 
know, we might say it every now and then, but what we really mean that this is a online gathering. But church happens when we are together, when we are gathered together in Christ's name, where we call upon His name together. That is when church happens. Church is not happening when you sit by your lonesome, by yourself, watching me on the screen. That is not church. Church is when the people of God come together. It is an embodied community. Now, let me take you through a whole bunch of uh, facts, you know, and I'm taking you somewhere with this, and I'm going to land a plane hopefully real soon. Now, anthropologists would describe uh, the first century, the environment and culture that Jesus grew up in as a strong group society. Now, that is as opposed to a weak group society or collectivism as opposed to individualism. Now, the cultural anthropologist Bruce Molina described a strong group society as such. What this means is, first of all, that the person perceives himself or herself to be a member of a group and responsible to the group for his or her actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general. Now, example of this would be most of Africa, Arabic culture, or pop fiction figure like Spock, you know, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one. Now, for persons in the ancient world, particularly in the ancient Near East, marriage took a backseat priority uh, to another more important relationship, the bond between blood brothers and sisters. It is said that marriages in traditional societies like the New Testament world are almost exclusively contracted to enhance the social standing of the respective families involved. Very little, if any, consideration is given to the relational satisfaction of the couple. The family has the first and final word in any discussion about who marries who in collectivist societies. While marriage was important for those reasons, the closest same-generation family relationship was not the one between husband and wife. It was the bond between siblings. We think of the story of Mark, Anthony, and Octavia, and how she left his side to stand with her brother Octavian, despite letters revealing of her deep love for Mark Anthony. Now, the following is a basic summary of ancient relational priorities. Number one, in the New Testament world, the group took priority over the individual. Number two, in the New Testament world, a person's most important group was his family. And number three, in the New Testament world, the closest family bond was the bond between siblings. All this to say, all those facts to say, the term brother or family meant immeasurably more to the strong group authors of the Bible than the word means to you and me today. It was the most important treasured of all family relationships. Now it's with that as a context, as a backdrop, that we look at a passage of scripture from the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 3, verse 31, it says this in God's word, then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside. They sent someone in to call him. A crowd was seated, seating around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. They were looking for Jesus. Who are my mother and my brothers? Jesus asked. Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Notice for Jesus, his community of disciples, those who journeyed with him, those who fellowship with him, those who did God's will together with him, those he regarded as his family. And what does Jesus call his disciples? He calls them 
brothers or brethren for some of you. Now, the term was not just used by Jesus, but by all of the writers of the New Testament. The word here in Greek is adelphoi, and it's used a staggering 342 times in the New Testament. By way of contrast, the term Christian is only used a meager three times. Now, that should paint a picture of what kind of community Jesus and the writers of the New Testament had in mind when they thought of the church, had in mind when they thought of the Christian community. It was one that looked like a family, and not in the anemic, cheesy kind of sense, but in a deep, covenantal, treasured, sacrificial sense. It was the family of God, our Delphoi. And for those who heard it in that day, it would mean all sorts of implications. It would mean sacrifice. It would mean valuing the collective good above their own individual needs. We are told in the motion in Scripture to view each other as brothers as sisters in Christ, as a family. It isn't your casual sub-bro. It meant a whole lot more than that. We see this imagery of family, brothers, sisters, household, all through the New Testament. Brothers and sisters in Mark chapter 3, our Father in heaven, we see this language in the Lord's Prayer. Salvation as a, a, a kind of metaphor, it's a, the metaphor of being adopted into a family. The church as a household in First Timothy and the early church being one that met primarily in homes. In homes around a table where they prayed, fellowship, ate, broke bread, drank from the cup, remembered Christ's sacrifice on the cross. That was the early church. That was what it looked like to be the Christian community in that day. It looked like people committed to one another as brothers and sisters, as a family, meeting together in homes, eating, doing life together, and remembering of Christ's work on the cross for them. And I think of that Max Lucado line that goes long before the church had pulpits and baptistries, she had kitchens and dining tables. Now for the early church, we see them meeting in homes where the center of the gathering is the table. It is where they met and did church. The house of God, family, met in homes as an embodied community, as a body. And now what has happened in this time of disruption is that we are forced to do church in a mode, in a mean, in a manner that is not atypical of how we usually do church. Usually the way we do church is we come together in a hall like this. On Sunday morning, we go through a program together, hear God's Word, celebrate together, uh, and then that's that. That is church. But today we are forced to explore a different model of church, and some have embraced this kind of online gathering experience as the preferred mode of church. Now, what has happened in this time is perhaps you are being led to discover church not as one found in auditoriums, but church at home. Not as one that is around a stage, but around a table. Not as one that is built on a program, but one that is built around life and it's all its grind and messiness. It's not that we have tossed aside all that we have always done, but it's my observation that God in His mercy and His grace 
through his spirit at various points of history will swing the church and will emphasize a particular truth, an aspect of his nature, of his character, of his kingdom, and call us to bear down and to learn those lessons. And perhaps in this time, we are to learn to lower our reliance on the Sunday gathering, on a program service, and actually took ownership for one another, to, took, to take ownership for our own personal spiritual growth, to take ownership for what it means to be the people of God beyond our program services. What does it mean to be a people of God living together in community unto the mission of God? And I'd like to close off with looking at one last passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 12. It's a lengthy one, but I believe this would allow us to capture much of what it means to be the community of God, the family of God, the household of God in this time. 1 Corinthians 12, starting from verse 13. It says this in God's word. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink, even so the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, that's a crazy picture, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, that's a crazier picture, where would that sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as He wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker and indispensable and the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment, but God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Verse 27, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. This is the word of the Lord. Now in that passage of scripture, Paul reminds us that we are the body of Christ. Just consider that for just a moment. It is so staggering to think that Christ, a perfect God, spotless and blameless in every way, has chosen to associate with us in that manner. He calls us His body, Christ, Cause you and I, imperfect, flawed people who mess up, who sin. He calls us His body and He has given us His name. God, in many ways, refuses to exist without us. That is the grace of God. This is remarkable news. We are His body. He has given us His name. That's so staggering to even think. And so consider this moment. We are the body of Christ and how staggering that phrase, that short line even is and what its implications are. I'd like to present to you four things to chew on, to reflect, and four implications of what it means to be 
a body, what it means to be the body of Christ. The first part is this, that we all have a part to play. Paul uses the brilliant illustration of the human body to relate the working of the community of Christians, even as every cell in a human body is linked by a common root, a common DNA code, yet the parts of our body, members, they look different, are treated differently, work differently, and accomplish different purpose. We are a body intricately, inextricably woven and entwined together. That is the body of Christ. Even so, there is great diversity in the body of Jesus Christ, both in appearance and function. And we all have unique stories, don't we? We all have unique skill sets, gifts, talents, and history. And what we ought to ask ourselves in this day, a question we ought to ask ourselves is this, what does it look like? What does it mean for me to utilize my gifts, my talent, and my story in service for others? God wants to use all that we have, our talents, our skills, our history, be it good or traumatic, for His purpose and glory, for the service and sake of others. The other implication is this, that we are part of something bigger than ourselves. The word used to describe the body of Christ could refer to the local, global, and historic church. Local meaning that we are connected to those in our community. We are connected to one another. We are one body. Global meaning we have been baptized in His name and regardless of country or denomination, we are all part of the body of Christ together. We have brothers in the Methodist Church, brothers in the Lutheran Church, brothers in the Presbyterian Church. We have brothers and sisters everywhere. And we're also part of the historic church, that which transcends space and time. And understand that the church did not start in China or America. It started with a man named Jesus Christ, with his disciples. And that is our heritage. That is our lineage. That when we read of scripture, when we read of how God moved in the days of Acts, how God used the Apostle Paul to plant churches that review and reflect his kingdom. And we read down further in church history and saw how God moved through various mighty men of God, through various mighty moves of God. That is our history. That is our lineage. We are the body of Christ. It's a rich tradition that we have inherited. We, though many, are one body in Christ. The third implication is this, that the well-being of my brother or sister determines my well-being. It says this in the text, that if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. Now, I recently went for a chiropractic adjustment for my shoulder. It's been giving me a bunch of trouble. And through a a couple of little adjustments and and checks, we actually found that the issue uh, actually lies with my upper back. My upper back has been having a bit of tension. It's caused tension in my neck, and that tension in my neck has led to tension in my shoulder, and that tension in my shoulder has led to tension in my rotator cuff. It is all connected, and that is what it means to be a body. We are all connected. And when one part suffers, because we are all connected and intertwined and linked together, every part suffers. If they are hurt, I am hurt. This means we take the needs of others in our community with great seriousness. It won't be dismissed with a casual, I pray for you, but we will go to great lengths, much like we would do for ourselves to serve and care for the other. It says this about the early church in Acts chapter 2. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. 
Now that word for common is the root word for koinonia, which is what we understand community to be. And so a base definition of community can look like it is being close enough to see need and feel suffering, and it's also close enough to offer help and love sacrificially. That is what it means to be a Christian community, the body of Christ. The last implication is this, that we are the presence of Christ in the world. Notice the language, we are the body of Christ. He has given us his name. We represent him. We express him to the world around us. There's a story of a four-year-old girl who had nightmares one night and she alone ran to her parents' room and a mom come her down, gave her some Bible verses, prayed with her and said, God is with you, please go back to sleep. And they ushered the girl back into her room and she exclaimed with a loud voice, I know that God is here, but I need someone in this room with skin. God knows that we needed His skin. And that is why Jesus, 2,000 years ago, came incarnate in the flesh to be with us. It's for this reason that many people pay 100, 150 bucks for therapists to sit and be with them. Today, God still has physical skin. Today, God is still being there for people. He can be seen, touched, heard, and tasted. How? Through His body, through His church, in whom He dwells. We are called in the name of Jesus and by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to be His body, to be skin for people around us. Bonhoeffer has this crazy line. He says this, that the church is not a religious community of worshippers of Christ, but Christ Himself who has taken form among people. Isn't that crazy? Ephesians 3 verse 10 says that God's intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. And what a stunning vision for what the church is to be. What a compelling vision. But what a heavy, heavy, heavy vision that God wants to use His church, His people, imperfect and flawed in many ways, to reveal His glory, His manifold wisdom to the world. He has given us His name. And I would admit to say, even as I consider all of this, the vision of what it means to be a church, that the church hasn't always gotten it right. Uh, an author once said that when the church is functioning at its best, there is no single, uh, there's simply no community on earth that can rival it. But when the church is functioning at its worst, there is no community on earth that can do as much damage. One of the things I found that works against the church is that people have doubts on the credibility of the church. Some of my deepest, most painful memories have got to do with the church, the people in the church. But some of my best moments in life, the most generosity, the most grace, the most kindness I've ever experienced has got to do with the church. And if you're like me, you live in this tension, this both end of disillusionment and disappointment, as well as great hope and faith in the church. So what kind of church do we want to be? One who stumbles and is inconsistent, exclusive and damaging? Or do we want to be a church that functions at its best, capturing Jesus' vision that of a church that isn't just a building you go to, an event you attend, an experience you consume, but an embodied community that loves well. And then Jesus says this, that by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And in a very practical sense, 
We can't love each other well in a hall like this where we are all gathered and seated in seats and just attend an event. We can't love each other well. We can't put off hypocrisy, envy and careless words as scripture says when we sit together in a hall like this. It's far too sterile. We need to be in the grind with one another. We need to be in the trenches. We need to do life together in community to be the family of God, the body of Christ in order for these things to be weed out of our hearts in order for us to manifest love to one another such that it may be a witness to God and His kingdom. So the question we're all asking at this point is, what is church to be then? Is it small groups or is it gatherings auditorium? Is it the stage or is it the table? And to that I say yes and yes. We want the best of both folks. We want the corporate gathering where God comes in His glory and power, but we also want to be faithful in the small gatherings, recognizing that it's only in that kind of setting that much of the Christian life is lived out. Acts 5.42 says this about early church, that day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is Messiah. Which seems to imply that there is an early sense of need that there needs to be both a larger and smaller gathering. But the church is not to be built on a select group of gifts. But the church is never to be established on the charisma or anointing of one person or handful of people. But the church isn't because we get on the stage and put a service together. That is not the church. The church is not to be built on a particular moment or event. The church is not to be built uh, on a kind of experience, but the church is to be built on the foundation of Christ and recognizing that we are all one body and we need each other and we need each other to play their part. And what if in this time we figured out the power of the twos and threes gathered in His name and come back stronger together in time because the church isn't a building you go to it isn't an event you attend or an experience you consume it is the people of God it is the family of God it is the body of Christ let's be the church let's be the body of Christ for each other I'd like to close off this time with time of prayer even before we go into worship together and I hope that you are with people today, that you have taken up an invitation of uh, opening up your homes to host people. I would like for you to gather, uh, know everyone in the house right now, if you're with a family, gather your family together, and let's stand together in this time for one another to pray for God's blessing, His grace, but also His wisdom and leadership to be upon us. We so need God to speak to us this day. You know, it's in, in a time like this, I have come to realize the fragility of my resolve and my lack of know-how and understanding on the, on the times. Uh, and I so, so need God. And, you know, people ask me, what is the future of the church? Is it that event? Is it that way of doing church? Is that that model? I'd like to say to you that the future of church is humility, is repentance, is prayer. We need to come back to a humble, humble posture in repentance, in deep repentance, seeking for God's face, His wisdom, His leadership together. So I invite you in this moment to join me in doing so. Father, as always, we thank you for your word. Thank you for how your word challenges us, how your word speaks to us, but also how your word illuminates hope in our heart, that this is not all there is to be. There is more that you have in your heart, in your mind for your church. 
And Jesus, I thank you for how you've entrusted us with your name. And God, we repent for times or moments where we have misused your name or where we have not represented your name well. God, we ask that you give us the grace to be your body. Give us your grace to represent your name well. Give us grace to love one another, to take your word seriously and recognize that in doing so, in loving one another, in being in the thick of things, in being through hard stuff, in being through uh, moments of offense and, and moments of of dealing with deep-rooted sins and dysfunctions, when we are faithful in doing so, we reveal your love. And may our love for one another startle and provoke and awaken the imaginations of the world once again, such that many will know that these are people truly possessed by a divine being, truly possessed by they whom they call Christ. Help us to be such a people this day. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Let's go back into worship together.